Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to the Afternoon Show with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold uh, part of that little sentence, and awfully glad that you are joining me today because we have a great show. I've been thinking about you all day, and here we are together, so I hope uh, I hope you enjoy what I have planned just for you. Uh, my first guest today is, um, is Jonathan uh, Dotson. He wrote a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship 10 years ago, and he's revised it and updated it, and it's uh, it's a gem. And he says that real discipleship is imperfect yet transformational. So he wants Christians to engage more authentically with others as they grow in faith. I think that's a wonderful idea. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, Bill. Thank you so much. Look yeah. forward to chatting. Yeah. Very cool that you had a chance to update the book. I suppose when you go back and you look at you know, what you wrote, uh, there must have been some things you wanted to change and tweak a little bit and maybe take out and then add in, right? Yeah, certainly. You know, sometimes these updates, they look just, you just change a cover. But uh, <laughs> I did get a new cover. It's uh, not green, it's red now. Yeah, but uh, also I like added three new chapters and um, revised a lot of it, updated it. Uh, one thing that was missing was a, a chapter on mentor discipleship. There's yes. a lot of talk about peer discipleship in the book, but I wanted to help people think about what does it mean to be a spiritual father, a mother to younger brothers and sisters in the faith. So, I enjoyed writing that one. Well, I love that, and I think that's so important, uh, mentoring. Uh, Jonathan, you uh, talk about uh, three aspects of a disciple's identity. What are they? Yeah, well, uh, I use uh, three aspects that I take out of the Great Commission, um, and those are that a a disciple is rational. Um, The gospel changes what we believe. A disciple is relational. It it changes uh, who we live with, or it changes our community. Um, and then it, uh, it's um, rational, relational, missional. Um, it changes where we live, the, the people that we live next to, the cities or towns that we're in. So uh, it's kind of a holistic thing. It's not a just kind of go to church and then do what you want to do with your life. It, Jesus is Lord over all of our lives and invites us to follow him into those perhaps three aspects of what it means to be a disciple, rational, relational, and missional. I like that a lot. So I know there's plenty of people who are followers of Jesus, but they don't really feel qualified to make disciples, but that's what we're called to do. Maybe you've got a word of encouragement for those folks. Yeah. A lot of people feel like they have to be, you know, 15, 20 years down the road, or they have to be a certain age to make disciples. But uh, though understandable, those aren't any of the qualifications that Jesus had. I mean, remember his ragtag group of disciples that right. he handpicked. <laughs> they weren't uh, well-educated ed- men. Uh, they weren't impressive, um, uh, blue collar to white collar, uh, and everything in between. So, uh, yeah, we can all make disciples. It reminds me of a woman in our church who um, we were talking about her neighbor. Her neighbor was a Hindu, and she felt so intimidated and, and unqualified to kind of connect with her and to try to disciple her. And um, I reminded her that, you know, you're not sent in the authority of your wisdom or 
the authority of your experience or the authority of your uh, apologetic answers. You're sent in the authority of Christ. That's what the Great Commission says, that Christ has all authority in heaven and earth given to me. Now, go make disciples. And so if we, if we kind of reframe uh, what authority we go under, not wisdom, mm. not eloquence, not experience or age, but we go, we go with Christ. And wherever we go, Christ goes. And we can tell people what Jesus has done for us. We can tell people who Jesus is and be honest about how he has changed our lives and how he can change others' lives. And, and that's very significant. Yeah. Jonathan Dodson's my guest. He's an author. He's written a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship, and he had a chance 10 years ago to write it, and now he has revised it and updated it and added several chapters. So it's a, it's a, a find for those interested in learning more about uh, being an effective disciple and how churches can implement this and apply it, because I think that's always a key. And I know people don't want to be discipled and have somebody apply methods or techniques. Uh, They want to be loved, but they also want to grow in their faith. So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, I, I mean, all of us probably tend to put something else in the center of our discipleship other than the gospel. It's the book's gospel-centered discipleship. A lot of us are rule-centered, whether we know it or not. Some people like to keep the rules. You know, uh, some people like to break the rules, keep the rules. If I do enough quiet times, if I say enough prayers, if I have good church attendance, or maybe if I'm very active in justice and mercy ministries or I'm evangelistic, you know, God will think well of me. I'll have his favor. Other people kind of break the rules. Uh, they, they don't uh, drive under that kind of impulse, but kind of they're a king into themselves, a lord into themselves. Um, but they're still rule-centered. Mm-hmm. It's a keeping or breaking the rules begins to define who we are. And a false sense of joy and freedom or shame and guilt come when we fail. And, uh, of course, Jesus breaks the plates that we spin in all of these activities and says, I don't want you to be rule-centered. I want you to be gospel-centered. I fulfilled all the holy rules for you. So why don't you follow me and let me change you? And uh, that's just such a freeing way to go about following Jesus, uh, to have the gospel at the center as opposed to rules at the center. The rules are important. The holy commands are significant. They, they bring us joy and they shape our lives. But they aren't the motivation. The motivation um, is the gospel of grace. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Dotson's my guest. His book is Gospel-Centered Discipleship. Um, why would it be dangerous, Jonathan, to uh, rely on performance-driven discipleship? Well, it's kind of to follow on what we were talking about there. You yeah. know, performance, performance-driven discipleship um, is great when you're really killing it. You know, if you're, <laughs> if you're just, yeah, if you're really disciplined, you know, right. you're, you're an early bird. You read the Bible every morning. You pray, uh, but then suffering comes or. Life. Uh, you, maybe life. you get out of habits. Yeah, yeah life. Yeah. Life happens. That shows Your up. Kids, work, all the things. And uh, well, then suddenly your kind of self-worth, your spiritual identity plummets. Uh, you might uh, think less of yourself. Well, you know, you've attached your significance to your performance. And uh, performance will praise you on your good days and mock you on your bad days. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that when we fail him, when we fail to obey him, he doesn't mock us. He dies for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he lays his life down for us. He says, come back with the open arms and love in his eyes. He says, I forgive you. And that, that forgiveness should sweeten us uh, like a good dessert. You know, you take a bite of that ice cream, another scoop. You just want another more. 
the more you taste of the sweetness of Christ's forgiveness, the more you want to come back and follow him. Yeah, so how many how many scoops do you stop at? I'm curious. <laughs> well, if it's gospel scoops, you can have okay. all you want. Oh, uh, yeah, or, or at least four, because there's four gospels. Yeah, yeah. okay, so uh, ten, 10 years, Jonathan, to, to revise your book. I know you've added three chapters. One is on the significance of mentoring. I think the uh, the book you started with was more peer-to-peer discipleship, and now you're wanting to talk more about mentoring. I'd love for you to expand on that. Yes, um, I did have to add uh, several chapters. One is on mentor discipleship. And um, it's it's so important that we have uh, older people in the faith, mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily age older, but, but, but they've walked with Jesus longer. They, they've trusted and suffered longer than we have. And they have things to say to us. So, you know, I've had mentors pretty much since I left the house and uh, they have spoken into my life. They've shaped my life. They've been examples of grace. They've been sources of wisdom. They've helped me make big decisions. And I'm so grateful but it's also helpful for, for those that are mentoring to see the vibrant faith of young people. You know, young people tend to take more risks. They tend to be more bold in their evangelism. Yeah. They tend to ask harder questions. And isn't, it, isn't this the design of God that the church is a family, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, enriching one another in the faith? So I wanted to kind of put that vision out there, uh, which comes right out of Scripture. I use Second Thessalonians where Paul talks about himself as a mother a father, and a brother, and operates in those different roles. But isn't, isn't this the, the genius of God, that the church isn't a program or an event or even a service? It is, it is a family, and a family that's gathered around the grace and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan, of course, not everyone has a good definition of family uh, or a good experience with family. And I love that you talked about your mentors. Let me ask you, Jonathan, did you invite them in or did they invite themselves in to your life? A lot of times I, I invited them in. Um, you know, I just I, I prayerfully uh, looked around, tried to find people that I respected, that I thought I might connect with. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think there are on occasions there have been some that have initiated with me. Um, sometimes people are, are a little hesitant to do that. But I mean... Every time someone has done that for me when I was younger, I so appreciated it. You know, even if it was just a lunch or a coffee and we didn't ever, ever meet again, there's such a blessing to be around people who say, I'm interested in you. Yeah. I want to encourage you in the faith. Yeah. You really can't go wrong with that. You no. know, I mean, it's just so, yeah, I've had both experiences. What I'm thinking about is uh, older uh, people seasoned in their faith, uh, full of a desire to mentor somebody they can't just walk around all day hoping somebody says, boy, you're a cool person. Would you mentor me? <laughs> you know, I don't think that's going to yeah. happen very often. So I love the invitation. I love saying, um, I'm not putting any time limit on this, but how about we meet for a coffee or a lunch? And uh, I yeah. would love to hear your story where you're at in your faith journey. Um, and maybe that's a good way to start a, a mentoring discipleship relationship. Absolutely. You know, and there's different types of mentors. Sometimes people get hung up on a certain idea. They've got to be a certain person, and they don't really see themselves like that. So it's helpful to kind of think about who you are and how God has made you to mentor. So there's mentors that are like coaches, and they kind of operate in the encouragement area. They, mm-hmm. When they meet with people, they give lots of encouragement. Uh, they listen. Then there's more like spiritual guides. They're not coaches. They're kind of uh, spiritual guides or directors. 
you know, they want to get into the deep kind of, uh, you know, uh, difficulties of your soul, sin struggles, things like that. Um, you know, so, so there's different types of mentors and it's okay to kind of stop and kind of think about, okay, who am I? You don't have to be somebody you're not, but to, to, to be intentional, like you're talking about and to move towards others, uh, it, with, with grace and with the, with your life and, um, and to listen, to listen to what people are going through. It means so much. Indeed it does. Jonathan, uh, Dodson is my guest. He's written a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship, and it's all updated and revised. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to ask him about the characteristics of a healthy accountability group or a, a healthy relationship. We'll talk about that with Jonathan when we come back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Are you glad it's Friday? I hope you are glad. I'm glad. I love Mondays. So uh, Monday coming up with a week from, let's see, is it two weeks? We start our our, our fall fundraiser. We do. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be awesome. We it's, love it's a big it. family reunion, and it's always great to hear stories of what God's doing in your life. And then we hear stories of incredible generosity. We hear stories of of what people's visions are for their personal life and for how they can contribute and be part of the fundraiser here. It's it's awesome. It, it is awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. And I will say uh, there's a lot of people that have this idea that, you know, I'd like to maybe um, make a donation, but I also want that money to be earmarked for uh, a match because that's happened quite a bit. And it's been very satisfying because usually the matches always get met. They do. Mm-hmm. And we have some amazing, generous people, but it's just... It kind of puts a wind in everybody's sails. It it's really fun to it's know that fun. your money's doubled. It's fun. We're talking about gospel-centered discipleship with uh, Jonathan Dotson. He's written a book, and he had it revised and updated. He did it, the work himself, I, which I would expect him to do the work himself. But I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk, Jonathan, about um, healthy accountability groups or, or healthy discipleship relationships. What should they look like and smell like? Yeah. Well, maybe I'd talk about what they shouldn't and then what they should. Okay, that'd be great. Uh, uh, you know, I can remember being in college, being in an accountability group, and uh, when we got together, uh, there was a list of eight questions, and uh, they were penetrating questions, some of them very good. You know, um, have you looked at sexually explicit material? Have you been generous with your finances? Uh, you go through the list, and the last question would be, have you lied on any of the questions above? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, that there was no gospel, there was no grace, it was all performance and morality. And while those morals are good, if you if you failed on those, you just felt like a complete misery of a person by the end of the accountability time. I mean, yes, we pray for one another, but there was no gospel of grace kind of motivating that holiness, that, that aim for holiness. So <clears throat> I, I prefer not to, to have relationships based on that. Uh, we tend to do kind of text theology life. So we get together, 
uh, chit chat, and then we open the scriptures together, and we look at the text, and we say, "What does it? What does it mean? What is it saying?" And as we read that, we look for theology. What is it telling us about God, His character, His heart, His nature, His work? And then, as we're moved by God, we talk about life. Where am I struggling? Uh, you know, how might this picture of God, this promise of God, address a sin struggle or a suffering or a difficulty in my life? And as we do that together, text theology life, what becomes central is not the, the rules, but the, the presence of God in the scriptures uh, through the character uh, of Christ often manifested in the text. And so that, that's so transformational and so endearing. So it keeps the kind of importance of holiness, but it's driven by a kind of vision of who God is in the scriptures. And um, they've been life-giving to me, and I won't ever stop doing them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really helpful, Jonathan. M- let me ask you about uh, what are disciples of Jesus called to fight for? And and how does this kind of faith-filled fighting differ f- from other types of fighting? Well, yeah, I have a, a chapter on that in the book where we kind of ask that question. And the, the short answer, I think, is 2 Corinthians 3 that we, or Romans 8, that we're to be conformed to the image of his son. So the goal of discipleship isn't morality or justice or evangelistic notches on the belt. The goal is Christ, to, to know Christ, to enjoy Christ, and to resemble Christ. It's, it's the very image and presence of Christ. So that's that's the goal of discipleship. And I think you had a part two to your question there. Um, what, well, I, and I've forgotten th- it. That's okay. Uh, I mean, the question was, you know, how does this kind of faith-filled fighting different from other kinds of, you know, combat or fighting? Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody fights, you know. We all fight. You know, some people fight for to look look good, you know. So when I walk out the door, I want I lost to that fight. Me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, some people fight um, in order to have an impressive career. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, you know, uh, fight to be, um, you know, praised for their success, or um, you know, so we, or 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 to to be successful on the field. You know, we we all kind of fight for the things that are most valuable to us. And so I think the challenge is to rec- to be honest. <laughs> about our tendencies to fight for other things and to consider what would it look like to expend energy on fighting for the ultimate thing for intimacy and, and, and love the intimacy and lovingness of Christ to, to know him, to reflect him, to enjoy him. Uh, that reward won't let us down. That reward won't cease to satisfy. Unlike the fights for age, for athleticism and success, mm-hmm. those things come and go, but the beauty of Christ only becomes dearer and sweeter. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Dodson is my guest. He's written a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship, and he's been uh, revising it and busy updating it and adding chapters. And it was first published 10 years ago. So um, I, I would love to, uh, Jonathan, have you talk about the, the correct mindset that Christians should have towards repentance. Mm. Well, it, it, it often comes across as a bad word. You know, we often confuse it with penance. like, what do I have to do? I'm on God's bad side because I sinned. And so what do I have to do to get on God's good side? But repentance is, is not, it, re- repentance is realizing you're already on God's good side because of Christ. Mm-hmm. 
It's, it's, it's just simply turning away from whatever sin was appealing to you and turning to Christ. It's a, a single movement, a, a redirecting of our heart's glance uh, towards the, the one being that is truly satisfying, that is truly for us, um, and that is truly uh, great. Uh, so re- repentance is really good news. It's, it's remembering who we are in Christ. Sin is kind of a momentary insanity. You know, you, you um, uh, let's say you gossip about someone and you're convicted about it. You don't need to kind of, you know, uh, grovel because you, you have failed. You, you turn to Christ. You say, I've, I've gossiped about others because I wanted to feel important. And would you forgive me and remind my heart that, that I'm important because of your love. Mm-hmm. You know, to to be to turn with whatever that thing we're looking for in sin to bring it back to Christ and seek forgiveness, but also to find replacement. Uh, Jesus always beats the the false promises of sin with a better promise. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of repentance is always good news because you're waking up to the the beauty, the goodness, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Jonathan K. Dodson, and if I was a a county fair worker, I would say Kenneth. <laughs> would I be right? It's Karsten. Car- See, you'd you'd walk away with the oversized comb. <laughs> I'll take it. And by the looks of your hair, uh, you need it. So, uh, you know, we only have a few more minutes, Jonathan, but I'd love to talk about, uh, this is, a, I think, an important topic, how believers can integrate the Holy Spirit into their decision-making on an everyday basis. How do we do that, and how do we do it better, and how do we have the Holy Spirit working his way into every decision we make? Yeah, this is probably my favorite chapter in the book. This, the Spirit is the, is the engine behind the gospel. It gives us belief in the gospel, and we don't have to earn his presence. It's always eternally with us, and, but often we kind of snub him. Uh, we neglect him. Um, it's kind of the neglected person, third person of the Trinity. And so, you know, you might have a decision you're going to make, um, and you might just kind of bounce decisions around. You might have a temptation come your way. You know, should I, uh, should I lust? Should I be angry? Should I gossip? And and you kind of just we get into these kind of uh, rational discussions, these interior dialogues, where we kind of weigh the pros and cons and we make a decision. But in those moments, the moment of temptation, the moment of opportunity to obey, often there is a nudge to do one thing, to turn away from temptation or to make a particular decision. And very often that's the Holy Spirit. And if it's about holiness and obedience, it's always the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So it's not our enlightened moral reasoning that's n- nudging us to do the dishes or to share the gospel or to uh, be, be kind and gracious and not angry. Those That is the third person of the Trinity prompting us. So I think it begins with recognizing his voice and and re- realizing, you know, this is not a kind of dialogue with my moral reasoning. Mm-hmm. This is the spirit moving me towards Christ-likeness. So <clears throat> I think that, that that's kind of the first step yeah. uh, in doing that. And there's a point in my life where I just realized I'd been doing this for so long that I needed to repent of just kind of neglecting yeah. the Holy Spirit. And that was a real kind of watershed time for me in which I began to get to know the spirit more intimate. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with me today. I've enjoyed meeting you and talking about your book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, Jonathan Dotson. Thank you so much and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Bill. Thanks you for bet. the great question. You bet. You know, you're welcome. 
take a break. When we come back, Dr. Greg Headington is going to join us to talk about James chapter 3 and taming the tongue. I don't want to miss any of this. Tongue. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. That comes right out of James chapter 3, and we're going to have some uh, teaching today with my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. He has uh, been kind enough to come back on the program and continue our study in the book of James, and we're all the way up to chapter 3. Greg, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Bill, and welcome to our study on the third chapter of James. I entitle this lesson, Taming the Tongue. The main idea in this chapter is that God wants his people to control their tongues and live their lives displaying true godly wisdom. In the first two chapters, James explains two characteristics of the mature believer. So, in chapter 1, James says the mature believer is patient in times of trouble. In chapter 2, James says the mature believer practices the truth. In this third chapter, he says the third characteristic of a mature Christ follower is to have power over the tongue. The believers James wrote to in the first century were apparently having serious problems using unwise words, just like we often do today. And that's why in 119, James writes, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. One of America's founding fathers, Ben Franklin, once said, A slip of the foot you may soon recover, but a slip of the tongue you may never get over. It almost rhymes. Let me say it again. A slip of the foot you may soon recover, but a slip of the tongue you may never get over. Mm. So let's look at Roman numeral one, potential misuses of the tongue through words. As the book of James says, the tongue is like the bit in the horse's mouth to guide him or like a ship's rudder, which can determine the way the ship or person is going. We know that one wrong word at the wrong moment can spoil a long-term relationship forever. We make first impressions with our words, and often a bad first impression cannot be repaired. It takes less than 30 seconds to make a first impression on someone And that may be the only impression we will ever have on them. And we tend to remember first impressions for the rest of our lives. And I mean, I'm thinking right now about a lot of first impressions of people when they were bad first impressions. It took me a long time to overcome that bad first impression. Mm -hmm. So, So they're important. Yeah. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're continuing our study on the book of James, and we're in chapter 3. If you just joined us, uh, make sure your Bible's open, because this is a wonderful study. First impressions are really uh, a big deal. There's no question. Right, and I wonder that in Psalm 141, uh, verse 3, the psalmist prayed that God would place a guard over his mouth. We're not talking about a dental device like a night guard, but rather Hmm. a soldier over his mouth to check everything that comes out of his mouth. Think of the immense power of the tongue when Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
In other words, we can bless someone or curse them. James also describes the tongue as a fire, ready to set things ablaze. We all know only too well how politicians and public figures can say just one word carelessly, and it can ruin the career that they've spent their whole life trying to build. Or the wrong word spoken can bring down a government. One unwise Mm -hmm. remark reported and circulated on the Internet can cause riots on the other side of the world. James says the tongue is like a little world all its own, a country within a country. Why is the tongue like that? Jesus points out in Luke 6.43 that what comes out of the mouth is an indication of what is truly in the heart. Now let's think about this. What we condemn in others is often what we dislike in our heart, in ourselves. But we tend to be much easier on ourselves than on other people. As Ralph Walder Emerson said, and remember, all truth is God's truth, no matter who says it. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, that which we call sin in others, we call experiment in ourselves. The smallest but largest troublemaker in all the world is the tongue. The real problem, of course, is not the physical tongue, but the heart. So Roman numeral two, the heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the author writes, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? James 3, 14 says, We often develop bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. And as Jesus concisely says in Matthew 15, verse 18, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And so it is the attitude of our heart toward circumstances that has got to be right to lead a righteous life. Another way to say it is 10% of life is what happens to you. 90% of life is how you respond to it. Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who wrote a book of his experiences, which is on most critics' list as one of the 50 books that Americans must read. It's called Man's Search for Meaning, and it's a very short book, which I like. Frankly, I like short books. Hmm, Me too. Bill, too. Uh, When Frankl was in the Nazi concentration camp, he saw how the soldiers mistreated the prisoners on a daily basis. Early on in his imprisonment, he made the crucial decision that he would not behave like an animal, but rather like a civilized human in that very inhumane environment. He resolved that everything he had or cherished had been taken away from him already, except one thing. In his memoir, part of his time in the camp, he is able to write, which became the book I'm talking about, he writes this, the last of the human freedoms is the freedom to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. I want to repeat that. The last of the human freedoms is the freedom to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. How true that is. We all have choices to make in every circumstance of life. And as St. Paul says in Romans 12:17, do not return evil with evil. 
So we say, but that that's so unnatural for some of us. Yeah, that's true. Wherever we look, we see people bringing lawsuits against one another, and this includes Christ followers. We see people in media making outrageous charges and using hyperbolic words against people. Why? Because people naturally want and demand justice. We want revenge. In fact, those are the movies and stories we often watch and read in which people exact revenge on others. In fact, we prefer the maxim, don't get mad, get what? Get even. Get even. (laughs) And, And we do want justice to occur. That's true. But it often will not occur occur in this life. Therefore, believers are not called to get even. God will sort that out. As he says in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. Mm. Believers are called to get holy. How so? By taking the high road instead of lowering ourselves into the mud and becoming like the one who offends us. And that's not easy. As we said earlier, whenever someone says something which is true, even though they may not be a Christ follower, we know that all truth is God's truth. Therefore, we do agree with a particular statement made by the atheist Friedrich Nietzsche when he said, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. Let me say that again. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. We are to act with love whether or not we feel like it. If we try to take revenge, we will then operate in the same dark world that they are in. Remember, an offense against someone is rarely viewed the same way by the offender and the offended. I'm repeating a lot of these words, but I think they're important. Oh, I think they're, they're important as well, Greg. One more, one more time. An offense against someone is rarely viewed the same way by the offender and the offended. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm reminded of a comedy routine um, in which one man offends another man, and that offender is taken to court. When he's asked by the judge how he will plead to his offensive crime, the man replies, I refute the allegation, and I reject the alligator. <laughs> Okay, it's a play on words. Alligator, it, it becomes more comical when you sort of play it over in your mind a few right. times. It, it, it's more of a, a time-release sort of humor. But uh, okay. I like, you know, I like that, Greg. Okay, yeah. well, I knew you would. And, and, and the point I'm trying to make is that instead of seeking revenge and perhaps compromising how we know we are to live, we are called to be light, to be truth in a dark world. I like the way the Apostle John introduces Jesus in the first verses of his gospel. He says in John 1, 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, light is a metaphor in Scripture for truth. Mm -hmm. As Dr. Martin Luther King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Dr. King lived according to that adage, and of course, it cost him his life. So we do our best to love others as Jesus taught us, but we will fail. Then we confess and repent and try again, and then we fail and confess, repent and try again over and over and over. But that's how we live this life. 
But God does not love us less. When we fail, he continues to love us. And when we give our lives to him in faith, the cross has redeemed us forever. And that's settled. But we'll never do it perfectly. As Martin Luther wrote in the 16th century, the Christian faith is a continual repentance. The Christian faith is a continual repentance. That's part of sanctification, which leads to a purposeful, joyful life in Christ. So don't be discouraged. Tongues are really difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. Yielding to God's power through the Holy Spirit is the only way there can be change, and that develops in the heart. So we all know negative words and tear down others, but what are some of the positive words that build up others? I'd be interested to hear what your list is, but here's my list. And by the way, Proverbs 25.11 says, A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So, Roman numeral three, 12 words that bring blessings. I believe if we use these 12 years words and sincerely mean what we say, then we will spend less time wishing we could take back our harsh words in the past and discover that our Lord will use our better words to bless people. Now, there's only 12 of them, and I'm combining the conjunctions. So, numbers one, two, and three, please and thank you. Now, I assume that uh, your parents, or those of you who are parents, spent many years instructing your children to daily incorporate those words in speech. It seems that those words uh, would be obvious to use, but we know what it feels like when someone does not use them and when they should. When, when we utilize them, we are showing appreciation and treating others as people, not as things. So, Bill, uh, we're going to go on for a while, but this might be a good time for a break. I think that would be wonderful. Dr. Greg Heddington is our guest. We're continuing our study in the book of James, and we're on Chapter 3, Taming the Tongue. What a great lesson we're having so far. We'll be right back with Greg after just a short break. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I am back with my friend and Bible teacher, Dr. Greg Heddington. We are in the third chapter of James, and I call this the triple T, taming the tongue. That's what we're talking about today. Greg, you're doing an awesome job. I'm excited about these 12 words. The first two or three was please and thank you. Yeah, well, yeah we'll go over this real quick. Yeah, we'll just, uh, just make sure they, uh, they get what we're talking about. Uh, there's a lot of verses about this subject in both the Old Testament and New Testament. In the first point, we talked about the potential misuses of the tongue, in the second point, we, we have seen the real problem, of course, is not the tongue, but the motivation of the heart. Yep. We can sometimes say the wrong thing, but if the other person knows our heart is pure, then they'll probably give us a break and uh, perhaps, you know, know that our heart is good. But for, if our heart's not pure, it's hard to hide the words that, that came out. So let's remember that in the very beginning, God brings the he, from the very start, God brings justice. And he's going to bring it along because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then the third point, we begin to talk about 12 words that bring blessings to others. Numbers 1, 2, and 3 are please and thank you. It seems obvious that we would always use those words, but we don't. I know we should not always expect the 
proper response from others, but it does it does hurt our feelings when others miss the opportunity to bless us when we've done something nice and we don't hear a simple thank you. Now, numbers four and five, I'm sorry. Elton John once wrote a song about how sorry is the hardest word to say. Well, in fact, sorry is not the hardest word to say. The hardest word to say is pneumono ultra microscopic siloco volcano kenosis. <laughs> that, that is the 45-letter word which describes a particular lung disease, and it is the hardest word to say in the English language. And how much did you rehearse that? Because that was really good. You got it on the first Well, well I kind of broke try. it down to make it easy. Okay. So, uh, you know, in my, in my struggle to pronounce words. But, yeah. but I think we understand the point that saying I'm sorry makes it the hardest word to say because of our pride, and it means we must admit failure. But those two words can break down walls and build bridges like nothing else. I mean, saying I'm sorry is its a good exercise in humility. There's so much we can say about that. But let's go to numbers six, seven, and eight. I love you. My family did, off, did not often use those words when I grew up. But did yours? We, uh, we knew the other family members loved us and each other, so there was never a doubt. And it did not, did not seem necessary in those days to articulate those words. We do now, though, and I'm glad the American culture has grown into a more expressive society, especially regarding the usage of those three words. Now, too many people assume romance and sexuality are connected with I love you, but the meaning goes much deeper than that. And it was only a few years ago that I began to feel comfortable articulating that phrase to a few close male friends, like I can tell Bill I love him and he doesn't get the wrong idea. I don't. So as a believer, we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and sometimes even verbalize it without always having the fear that those words will be misunderstood. I love you can approximate tremendous power, build bridges, and heal wounds. We all need to be affirmed because one thing I've learned in life, already one thing I've learned for sure, everyone is insecure. Now, it may not seem like it, but it's true whether a person is young or old. Sometimes we think people are being dismissive or arrogant mm. or snobby, but I'll tell you from my experience in life, they're insecure. That's just the way it is. So the I love you can approximate tremendous power, build bridges, and heal wounds. Now, the last four words on this list. Numbers 9, 10, 11, and 12 are, I'm praying for you. And when we use those words, let's be sure we're actually praying for them. When we talk to God about people, then we can talk to people about God. Let me say this again. When we talk to God about people, then we can talk to people about God. Our private praying for others helps us in our public verbalizing to them. Of course, we never say, I'm praying for you in a boastful way as if we were more spiritual than they are. We say it to encourage them, to let them know that we care about them enough to pray for them, and we want them to know our reason for joy and purpose in our own lives. Sometimes we will pray for them at that moment when they need to hear the prayer verbalized, whether it's on the phone or in public. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I've prayed for guys who come over and worked on the plumbing or the electrical 
situation here at the house. I pray for waiters when I'm eating at a restaurant sometimes, although I always ask if they'd like to stay there for the prayer or if they're too busy, I tell them I can pray when they go back to work. I don't want to cost them a job for after praying for them. <laughs> for all the dozens of times I have asked people if they would like prayer, only one time has a person said no. Oh, wow. Pr- pray that the Holy Spirit will lead you to pray for the people who need it, because we all need prayer. I remember one time in New York City, there was a, a line of people that wouldn't be lining up for. It was a table about four people who were asking people, would you like prayer? And people, no matter what their belief, were stopping and asking for prayer. It was quite remarkable. The smallest but largest troublemaker in all the world can be the tongue, but it does not have to be. God can, through the Holy Spirit, use our tongue to guide others into truth. Verbalizing our faith might sometimes make some of us a bit uncomfortable, but what have we got to lose? It is not we who change anyone's heart, after all. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, working on their heart. So how do we want to be known? That's a good question. James is talking about righteous consistency in living. We will have temptations every day, for many reasons, to not share the good news when we have an opportunity. I say that because I constantly face the temptation to just be a nice, friendly person, just kind of getting along in the conversation without saying something that makes anyone uncomfortable. I mean, news, weather, sports is an easy way to kind of get by in life, but that's that's my lack of faith in the Lord when I do that, because the true test of Christ in my life every moment is to show love and tell the truth about Jesus with love. Mm. Show and tell. Show it first by my life, then tell it. Again, what have we got to lose by living the way Jesus told us to live? So let's re-up. Let's sign up every day to speak up for Jesus, because the gospel is the best news anyone will ever hear. Remember, without him, we cannot. Without us, he will not do anything of eternal value. Why? Because since, let me say it again, without him, we cannot. Without us, he will not do anything of eternal value. Why? Because since the very beginning, it was his plan to empower us to be his hands, his feet, and his tongue to express the goodness of real life in Jesus. Here's the last point. Roman numeral four. After speaking righteously, we are to act righteously through good works as gratitude. Let me say it again. It's a long title. After speaking righteously, we are to act righteously through good works as gratitude. Mm. Now, we know we are saved purely by grace. Ephesians 2.8 is very clear about that. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ and not by earning it. So is there a place for good works? Yes. Let me say it again. Without God, we can do nothing of eternal value. But without us, God will not. What am I saying? Again, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself. I just think this is important. I emphasize we were created to do good works, which God planned for us to do before we are born. Mm-hmm. That's Ephesians 2.10. So we are as hands and feet to fulfill that purpose and glorify him in all that we do out of gratitude for his love. And he was the one who stepped out first toward us. President Teddy Roosevelt, in fact, agrees with Scripture when he says, knowing what's right to do doesn't mean much 
unless you actually do it. So we've looked at taming the tongue already, so let's now ask the ultimate question. Why were we created? Scripture says God thought us up in his infinite mind and formed us in our mother's womb so he could love us and that we might know and love him. It's very personal. God did not make you because he needed to make another human. He created you because he wanted you to exist, to know him. That's grace. That's his grace. Jesus died for you, and that fact should evoke the deepest sense of gratitude in our souls. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship. It's the Greek word poema, where we get the word poem. It can also be masterpiece. We were his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when we really understand how much God loves us, then our good works will occur naturally, just like when a child's happy, the child laughs. When we hear something funny, we laugh. Good works are the natural result of our love for the Lord who loved us first. God is so pleased when we recognize our desperate need for him. And even when we go off the rails in life and fail to live up to our best intentions, we can ask for forgiveness. And as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that's God's grace. What is grace? Grace is doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh, that's awesome, Greg. I love that. And I'm looking at the very last verse of uh, James chapter 3. It says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Amen. Amen to that. What a great lesson. Greg, thank you so much for uh, your time today and for continuing teaching here on my show. I so appreciate you, as do my listeners. Great pleasure, Bill. All right. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. And if you've missed any of this, we talked about James chapter 3. I highly recommend going back to the podcast and hearing it from the beginning. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.